We've been talking about some metaphors in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, and there's actually six metaphors in there, but we've look, we're looking at three, the athlete, the soldier, and the farmer. And we've looked at the athlete, and we've looked at the farmer, and this week we're looking at the soldier. So uh, I'll be starting off with an interview again. Uh, we've, we've interviewed a few people, people that were athletes, people that were farmers, and we had two fellas today that were going to be coming up the front to talk to us. However, one is on duty today now, <laughs> so he can't come as being a soldier. So going to get Bob up, uh, Bob Parrott, if you would please come up and sit in the hot chair. <laughs> now Bob actually is retired from the army now, uh, but you need a microphone. So firstly, Bob, just maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what you did uh, with the Army and about some of your deployments. Okay, I joined the uh, Army in 1979, March 1979. I was just shy of my 25th birthday and um, probably a little bit of background, but I remember my father saying to me, he said, you won't last three months. He asked me that again at my 15-year mark and at you know, my 20-year mark and what is, how long you been in? Um, so I went through basic training just like every other soldier does at Kapuka. Uh, back then it was uh, 13 weeks, 13 weeks of really hard work and preparation for my future life as a, as a soldier. Um, during the week I had a chance to talk to, uh, to Neil and I was telling him about... Um, the foundation uh, um, that they teach you. It's, uh, you start off by learning how to um, um, do things in an instant. And when I say an instant, it's got to be in an instant, otherwise there are replications. So um, it starts off with drill, it starts off with tidying your room, all of that sort of stuff. And um, it prepares you to be able to act on a word of command. So further on. Once I left uh, Kapuka, that was, uh, you know, like I said, three good months <laughs> of, of uh, being, um, you know, bashed from pillar to post. You go off into your initial employment um, traineeship. In my case, I was an armoured corps soldier, so I learnt to drive tanks. Um, and my first 17 years in the army, I was a tank soldier, so I was a driver. I was a, uh, an operator, that's the person that loads the, um, um, the weapons and, and um, maintains the communications. Very important fella, and he cooks a meal for the crew. Uh, I then became a gunner, and a gunner was probably my favourite job. My favourite job in the army was to be able to shoot the tank. Um, I loved doing it. In fact, I... I became um, one of those people that are painful because I couldn't stop talking about it. And I would train all, all the time, but, uh, talking about smokers and stuff like that. I'd be in a turret and I'd be doing turret drills and whatever. And I'd become very proficient at it. Um, I then become a crew commander. That means um, I've got my own little tank and um, as part of a troop I can move around the battlefield. Although back in those days we, did, we weren't at war. Um, I used to say it's not my fault <laughs> that someone um, 
someone hasn't started a war. Uh, so we were always training. Um, I then got a little bit of a back injury and it was a, a, a hereditary sort of thing. So uh, my career as a tank soldier was brought to an abrupt end because going cross country and all the rest of the stuff is a bit rough on your body. And I became a, um, a storeman. Um, it's really, it wasn't a job that I, that I wanted to do. I didn't like doing it um, until I realised the reason that, um, um, that we have stormen. Uh, I was, uh, um, in, especially in armoured units, the stormen goes everywhere that the tank soldier goes. Um, and uh, you're responsible to carry their food, their, um, their weapons, um, Everything, everything that they would need to survive in the field for seven days. So we, we would carry around with us. You conduct resupply, you conduct hot resupplies. So um, uh, especially uh, with armoured units, they will come straight out of the field. And when we say out of the, the field, it might, you know, you might actually hear people uh, fighting and, and then they're back through your resupply point. Um, and it's a fairly uh, uh, labour-intensive, um, full of training. You, nev you never stop training from, from the day you kick off till the day you finish, you never stop training. Um, and I, I say to people, um, uh, well, actually just recently we had that uh, um, talk about training your brain. Yep. Um, a lot of the stuff you, that you do, especially uh, when you learn to march, so you're doing drill. So drill is all about getting you to act on the word of command and not questioning, not um, uh, saying, oh, I really don't feel like doing that. You've got to do everything and act on the word of command. You'll see, um, uh, everyone has probably seen it on television if you haven't seen a parade or whatever, and everything is done in unison. Transcribe that over to, um, to being... Um, uh, on a battlefield, when your um, when your boss wants you to do something, he doesn't want you to question it. He doesn't want you to go off, um, uh, come out with suggestions or whatever. He wants you to do what he has asked you to do, and he wants you to do it now. Um, I, I've been fairly lucky. Um, I've had a number of deployments. Uh, uh, some of them peacetime deployments. I, I went um, as a, as a young fella in 1980. I went to uh, the UK for um, uh, six weeks and Germany. Uh, most of the time was spent in Germany in the field, but we, we went across to the UK. Then in um, 1985, I went uh, back to Germany again, um, but this time I got a, I got a, a job. It was um, uh, what they call exercise long look. I was selected um, uh, to go and represent my corps um, in um, the UK uh, for was about six months, um, training with British soldiers, and at the same time there'd be something, someone out this side. And but my job was to um, go to and report on museums around the world, military museums. Tough job. Oh, it was a it was a shocking job that one. I loved every minute of it. Um, 
later on in my life, I'd actually, I'd actually retired. The first time, I, first time I got out of the army was 2002, and I thought, that's it, I've had enough. And then the next day I came back in and as, a, as a reserve soldier on full-time service because I you know, couldn't, be that, <laughs> couldn't be that long out of the army. Um, and then uh, I got offered a, uh, uh, a trip to Bougainville. Uh, Bougainville was going through, as part of the peace monitoring group, was going through a lot of turmoil. Um, uh, I often say to people that um, out of my deployments, the one, only time I was ever um, uh, fearful of, of, of my life was in Bougainville. Um, everyone around there is carrying a weapon, a knife, um, uh, you know, a grass knife or, uh, um, or a really bad attitude. <laughs> And when you talk about big people, you're talking about big people. If, got a, if they're carrying a grass knife and got a, um, a bad attitude, well, you're being protected by your yellow T-shirt. So you, everywhere you go around, you just... Yeah. Um, there was a couple of times there that uh, things were uh, a little bit hectic. But I survived and I came home and God was with me. Um, my... Uh, Last deployment was, um, I, I did two, uh, two tours of the Middle East, but my last deployment to, um, to the Middle East was probably um, uh, my best deployment. Um, I loved uh, every moment of it because I, um, I, I was with people that I trusted. Um, and when we goes back to that, um, uh, you know, you do, you do your training and you act on the word command and all those sort of things, People ask me, um, were you frightened um, while you were over there? And I honestly tell them, no, I wasn't. I was the most protected person in the whole deployment. I told you that I carried the bullets, the bombs and the food and all that sort of stuff. When we went out, the first thing, the first layer around me was I had a, a fella sitting next to me, um, Nev. If he wasn't the best shot in the army, he was close on it. He could pick up anyone's weapon and just away you go. And he was, um, uh, he was very protective of me. Um, around me. Around that then, there was a troop. So all of these people, their primary role was to make sure that, that stuff got into, um, into the field. And because I'm sitting in the middle of that, they're looking after me. Mm. And around that, there's a squadron. And around that, there's the regiment or whatever. So why would I be frightened? I had so many people around me looking after me. And I think that most soldiers, um, they get to a point where they realise that, that they're not on their own. They're part of a team, they're part of a well-trained team, um, and yeah. Yeah. So, Bob, when you're in uh, the deployments, yep. what was your sense of pride in, in terms of representing Australia? What did, did you feel that you're actually representing the country or the army, or, or what was...? Yeah, I, I certainly did. It's not the same with every, every <coughs> soldier. Some, some people... Um, really don't want to be there. Some, some people, um, uh, they want to be home or whatever. Um, with me, I said, I, I was in my, you know, uh, late 20 sort of years uh, over there and I just felt that uh, I was really proud to be over there. We, yeah. did, we did an Anzac Day service over there and things like that. Um, and we had some really, um, really wonderful people around, around us. So when you go on deployment, um, 
what sort of things did you have to have in order before you left? Because you're obviously leaving home, family and all that sort of stuff. And what sort of concern was that to you? Yeah, I, uh, especially for myself, because uh, for those that don't know, I've got uh, six children, a wife and six children. Um, and I wanted to make sure that, uh, that everything was squared away. So that, um, uh, and it's twofold this, you, you, don't, wanna, you don't want your focus um, affected. So when you're overseas, you don't want um, people chasing you for money or um, um, you know, dra- any, any, sort of, any sort of drama. So you, you square all that stuff away before you go. Um, I, did, I, I got my eldest son, I, made him, I gave him power of attorney. So that if anything happened, um, and I'm not talking about anything happened to me, if, if um, we needed to do something, something with the house or you know, insurance or whatever, he could, he could act on my behalf, do everything. Um, and I, fo- I think that's very important to make sure that, that you get your house um, squared away here before you go away. Mm. Um, and you do see the... Um, the opposite of that, where people just go and and they they have to leave the deployment because things you know they haven't um, haven't squared themselves away. Maybe they've got to go back for court or things like that. Mm. Well, thanks, Bob. Um, Thank how about we honour Bob for his service to our country and to other people? <laughs> Thank you. So there you go, the soldier. When we look at all these metaphors, it's important to take them within context of all our Christian life. And um, as we look at this soldier metaphor, it's not about us bearing arms as Christians, obviously. So when it's talking about us being um, soldiers, it is not a Christian thing to go and kill people and spread the faith that way, although it had been done in the past. But definitely not a godly way of doing it. And as, as we read through this Second Timothy, the letter, as I said before, it's a time where Paul's in, a, in prison and it's basically the last time that he can make the effort to write to someone who he loves and cares about and sending out a message to him about the importance of what it means to be a Christian. This is like a last will and testament to Timothy, saying, hey mate, this is what you need to do. The gospel is so important and it's been entrusted to you. That was one of the words Paul used as he wrote to Timothy. It's been entrusted to you. It's something that has been given you to cherish and also to pass on to other people. The verse we're looking at is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. It says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. We must remember, as we look at this as well, as a soldier of Christ, that we are walking in the grace of God. It's the power of God not only to save us, but also to sustain us and also to help us actually carry out the duties that we carry out as Christians. But it is important to start to think about these things. Why would Paul say, be like a soldier, if you're a Christian? There's a number of things that we'll look at. Um, today and the qualities that we look at are one is that they're prepared to suffer number two is they keep their eye on the mission number three is that they please the one who enlisted them
And at this time, as Paul's writing to Timothy as well, this is a time when the Christians in Asia, a lot of them had deserted Paul. They deserted the faith and gone off chasing other things. And so this is a time when Paul's really saying, hey, you've got to resist the prevailing mood that is around at the moment. The mood that's happening within the church, the believers, but also the mood that's in the world. And there's no doubt that that's what we have to do. I heard this week that, that one of the churches was going to take out the word church from their title because they wanted to make sure that they're relevant to a younger world and they weren't going to talk about Jesus. They're going to basically take Jesus out of church. They're taking church out of church and Jesus out of church. There can be a real, um, <clears throat> a real mood sometimes where people decide that they're going to desert the real faith because when you stand up for real faith, sometimes it is costly, which is the first part of that, that message there, that soldiers are prepared to suffer. As a Christian, that you must understand that there are times when you will suffer, What does that mean? Does that mean that God's going to come and strike you sick and teach you a lesson and all those sorts of things? That's not what it's talking about. Yes, we do share in the sufferings of Christ. What did Christ suffer? Did he suffer those things like we're just talking about, the punishment of God to make him sick, to to destroy his life and, and so that he can suffer that way and he can carry his cross? No, it wasn't that at all. The suffering was the persecution that came against him, the people that spoke against him, the ridicule that he experienced. And as Christians, that is what we are going to experience at times. We're going to experience opposition in our life. We are going to experience some ridicule. However, the Bible says that if we are persecuted because we are doing the right thing, then it is actually a blessing to us. It is good for us if we are persecuted for doing the right thing. Now, most of you will know that if you are living a Christian life, you will receive favour many times. You will receive a lot of favour in your life. Why? Because you're living a good life, a godly life. People recognise it and see it. You'll see that, that people's hearts get changed because they can see the way you live and they'll begin to ask you questions. In Peter, it talks about that. The book of Peter tells us that, that they will actually be ashamed if they come against us because they can see the good lives that we lead. When they see those lives, they can ask a question, what is it about your life? What is the hope that you have? Jesus grew in favour with God and Jesus grew in favour with man. There is a favour that comes from the way we live. However, not everyone appreciates it. Not everyone appreciates it. Think about it in terms of your life. What is it that people come against? It's not usually your social righteousness, so people will understand that, you know, you're doing good, that's okay. Oh, we're feeding the hungry, we're, you know, sponsoring a child, we're doing a Christmas party, whatever it might be for those that, that need help. We're, we're going and mowing someone's lawn, we're showing love to people. People appreciate that. <coughs> Excuse me. Could you get me another glass? (laughs) I probably will cough a lot today. I've had a sore throat. But what about righteousness that is moral righteousness? Moral righteousness. I don't know about you, but if you stand for the right way of living according to God's word, that seems to be where you get attacked, isn't it? 
I know that's really where people question me a lot. Neil, why? I remember at uni, Neil, you don't drink, you don't smoke and you don't have sex. What do you do for fun? It's sort of like, what's wrong with you? But we live righteously without living in a way that judges people. (coughs) We live before them in this righteous way that causes them to ask questions. Why aren't you coming to the strippers with us? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you gossiping with us? What's wrong with you? You see, people aren't usually that much offended by your social righteousness, but your moral righteousness becomes quite offensive to people. Why? Because they feel that they're judged. They feel that if if you're living that way, that you're somehow projecting onto them that they're bad, that they're sinners, that they need Jesus and everything they're doing is wrong, which is true. But we are not there to judge them. Jesus had that same problem. The Pharisees one day had a real crack at him and they said, Jesus... You're judging us. He said, you know what, I'm not. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. I didn't come to condemn people, but I came to save it. The thing that is judging you and condemning you are the words that I'm speaking. In other words, when you speak the truth and live the truth, at times it will be offensive and people will feel judged. But we are not to judge in that way and condemn. But we have to understand, just as a soldier, you will sometimes suffer persecution. And we don't like it. We don't like the fact that if we don't fit in with the world, the prevailing mood that's around us, sometimes you are going to be ostracised. Peter also says that don't be surprised that when your friends that you used to have are going to you, what's wrong with you? You used to come out partying with us. You used to come out and get drunk with us. What is wrong with you? This is not a new thing. This is not a new revelation to the world. But it's an old one. Even back then, 2,000 years ago, the same questions were thrown at Christians. What's changed? Why are you different? You used to do what we do, but you don't anymore. Kenneth Hagin recalls a story when he was a young fellow and he'd just been saved. He was sick to death on his bed and he grabbed hold of the Word of God and got healing. He went out walking the street one day. One of his friends came up to him and he, and, and he said... Do you remember when we broke into that place? Because they used to do scurrilous things when they were young. We broke into that place and, and you stood watch at the door and he goes, nope, that wasn't me. He's going, what do you mean it wasn't you? Now he knew it was him, right? In terms of he was physically there. But he understood something that we need to understand as Christians. We are no longer who we used to be. We are now who God made us. The old man is dead, the new man is here. And what he was saying was, no, I wasn't physically there. What he was saying to this person was to prove a point, to start a conversation and say, you know what, I'm not that person anymore. And that can sometimes bring suffering in our life. Are you prepared to suffer? Number two... Soldiers keep their eye on the mission. This is probably, I guess, one of the biggest things that we have trouble with as Christians. In that passage in Timothy, it says, a soldier doesn't get entangled with the affairs of civilian life. So as Bob's talking there and and telling us about how he got prepared, there's a need to get things in order to be effective in the battlefield. 
as he said, people had to go home because of things. Maybe they hadn't set the family up right. Maybe the, the, the money wasn't the way it should be. Maybe they were being chased for bills. Maybe they'd done something else. Who knows? But as a Christian, this is probably the most dangerous thing that we can do is start to get entangled up with the things of this world. What does that mean, get entangled with the things of this world? What it means is this, that we don't seek God first. We don't look to what God has for us but we start to let the other things dominate our life. And that's what Jesus said, that the thoughts about these things, they dominate the thoughts of the unbelievers, but we're different. Our thoughts should be dominated by what we are here for. What has God placed me here for? What is the mission that God has for me? Now, there's nothing wrong with a lot of things. Because God even wants to give us things. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that the Gentiles seek after will be added to you. So it's not about the thing being evil or bad, but what it is is that we start to let our life get tangled up in all these things that we want to do. And so we become unfruitful for God. There's no fruit in our life. Our whole life is about serving us, serving our needs, getting what we want. And so we become unfruitful in the mission that we have for Jesus Christ on this earth. What are the things that, that Jesus talked about can tangle us? In Mark chapter 4, there's a warning to us about the way we become, become unfruitful. And it's letting the weeds grow. You just let them grow in your life. And why it is so horrible is because we are actually there... We are in Christ and we feel like we're doing something but we're being wrapped and trapped. When you think of being tangled, I remember going to um, the Lamington National Park in Queensland and um, beautiful place, absolutely gorgeous up in the mountains near Brisbane and um, doing bushwalks and, and just misty, big trees, lots of greenery, walking along all of a sudden it was like something's grabbed me. Totally right, Bob. There's a palm that's actually a vine that's called Wait a While. And on it you see that it's got these thorns that come down and they're sort of bent down. And if it hooks into you, it's really, really hard to get out. And it hurts. (laughs) Because they're very sharp. But the more you try to move, if you're trying to get out by moving and and wriggling and, and the effort that you do, you can't get free. All that happens is you get tangled up. And what happens then? Your progress is stopped in going forward. What is it that might be in your life that's like that? The three things that Jesus mentioned here, the worries of this life, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're always worried about everything, although that's a problem as well. But what it's saying is that just the everyday things become so important that you forget about God. The lure of wealth. Has anyone ever thought of what a lure does? It attracts you. It's shiny. So when when you go fishing, um, we did jigging the other week, and you got these silver lures on it. And what happens is they flash, they they reflect, they they look really good, and and the fish will come and bite it, and they get hooked. It's the lure of wealth. It's the thinking that money is going to be your answer and so you chase it in every area of your life. It becomes about what can I get. 
and the desire for other things. What could that be? I don't know. What is that desire that's in your heart for other things that stops you being fruitful for God? Is what I'm doing submitted unto him? We can't neglect our home duties, right? Unlike a soldier, it's not like God says, you know, forget about your family, forget about your kids, forget about everything else, and it's just me and you, me and Jesus. We're going on a mission together. Sorry, wife, I'll see you maybe. Sorry, kids, maybe we'll catch up one day and then we'll see a cat in the cradle later on. But there's, there's just something that we have to do. We have to put everything under God. And that is biblical. We can't just neglect our family and all that sort of stuff, saying we're going on a mission for God. That's not what it's talking about. What it's saying is don't get tangled up in it. You know when you start to think, my family time is more important than God. My family time is more important than, than whatever else it is. And so often that we need a bond and, and we'll forget about all our religious duties things we need to do for God, or, or what, what else could it be? Sport, you know, great, sport's fun, it's awesome, you can bond with people, you can learn great things in life, but all of a sudden that takes over everything in your life. TV, Facebook, what is it? The things that you do, people will often say, I don't have time, that's a load of rubbish. One of the things I heard once was, if you need something done, ask a busy person. Why? Because they're focusing on the task, what is it that I need to do? When it comes to God, we need to think, what is it that you need me to do, God? Has there been any time in your life where you've heard that little voice, that whisper from God that says, this is what I want you to do? You go, yeah, I should do that. You go home, turn on the TV, you watch three hours of television, go on Facebook, um, go down and spend two weeks partying on the Gold Coast, whatever it is, you, you get back to life and you're like, oh, I'm sure God told me to do something, what was it? It's like everything gets forgotten in that moment. It's like you just, you know, God, God's whispered to me. What did you do with it? <clears throat> I drowned it out. It was really annoying. The Holy Spirit, he just kept speaking to me. And I didn't want to do it. It was just too hard. It was just because I'd have to actually sacrifice something for myself. As we talked about with the athlete a little while ago, they sacrifice things. And sometimes foolishly, I hate it when I hear athletes, oh, I sacrificed everything to get this gold medal, lost my wife, lost my kids, lost my family, but I got this gold medal. Foolish. <laughs> Just crazy, right? And we applaud them. Bravo. But yet, people are not willing to sacrifice what they want at times for what God wants. And we need to understand whatever God wants for you is so much better. What is it that you might remember in the past? God said, whisper, whisper, I want you to do this. Where you felt like God's leading me in a direction and all of a sudden you just get too busy. It's easy to do, isn't it? When you've got young kids, it's really easy to forget about the things of God. But can I just remind you something? The Bible talks about an enemy, and as we're talking about soldiers, the enemy being Satan, and it says he walks around seeking whom he can devour. Satan is out for your kids. Don't you think he's not? 
It's not just a warning to us as adults to say that Satan's out to get you. It's a warning to us to say, you know what, he's after your kids as well. And if you want to neglect the things of God and give that as an example to your children, don't be surprised when Satan devours them. Don't be at all shocked when they don't think that God's worth it because you don't think God's worth it. You don't think it's worth giving up your life for the kingdom. Why should they? The example that we set in how we regard God and how we don't get entangled with the things of this world is very important. It's hugely important. Because Satan is not a kind person. Satan is out to kill, to steal and destroy. He loves it. And he'd love to do that to your children. Don't you worry about that. So as people of God, we must remember we have to keep our eyes focused on the mission, which is what? Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Teach people to obey my commands, baptize them. Start to understand that that is the mission for every single Christian here on earth. Your mission is not to get nice things. Your mission is not to live in that beautiful blessing of God and enjoy it and not to share it. Your mission is to share the good news with those around you in a gentle, in a kind, in a beautiful way. The story of Gideon's army being chosen by the Lord in Judges 7 is very interesting. That was one of the readings on our reading sheets that, that were out and there's another one for the next series we're doing on the back table if you want to take one. Now we could think, you know, the, well the battle belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? Does the battle belong to God? The victory belongs to him, right? Totally. So therefore, why do we even need to do anything? Last week we talked about becoming the vessel that's ready for use by the master. And in the story in Gideon, they were coming against an army and, and God said, you've got to whittle down the numbers of, of people here. What I want you to do is go down to the water and I want you to tell the guys, get a drink. Have a look how they drink from this stream. He says they go down on their hands and knees and they put their head to the water and suck it up, put them to one side. Others that go down, they'll put it in their hand, they'll lap it like a dog. <laughs> it sounds a bit horrible. But they lap it like a dog, put them on the other side. Well, 300 people lap like a dog, put them over there. God said... I want those guys. Gideon, I'm going to give you an amazing victory. You're not really even going to have to fight. The victory belongs to God. In Proverbs it says that. You prepare the horse for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to God. Totally true. So why do anything? If it's all about God getting the victory, why didn't he just say, I'll use the, the most unprepared people? Gideon, why don't you use those guys that, that put their face down in the water and weren't alert and looking around for the enemy? Why didn't God say, use the most worst, hopeless, ill-prepared people to go into this battle? Because God is requiring from us an obedience. Bob talked about it today. Why, does the, why, why do they go through all that discipline? So when the time comes, they're obedient to the word that's given to them. Imagine if it's like, you know... On the, on the marching, turn right, and they go, oh, I'll just turn left, I'll do whatever I want. Get out to the battlefield, grenade, run. <laughs> Why? 
it's only a grenade, boom, they're dead, they go to heaven, all's good. But that's how we need to be prepared for the master's use. God said, grab those guys that lapped, that were looking around, that were alert, that had prepared themselves for the battle, they were ready for battle, grab them because they're the ones that are going to join in the victory with me. Christians, we need to be the same way, prepared and ready for the master's use. Number three, they please the one who enlisted them. Who enlisted us? God, right? Through Jesus, he enlisted us. And you know what? Not only did he enlist us, the Bible says we actually belong to him. So many times the blessing of belonging to him is revealed in the New Testament if you read through it. Just do that for a bit of fun one day. Go through the, the letters and say, look at the verses that say you belong to Christ, belong to Christ, belong to Christ. There's two types of belonging. One is when we're gathered in and we're in the family, but we're also being bought with a price. If you are seriously understanding what God has done, you'll understand that the blood of Jesus paid the price for you. You, that's why you're not your own anymore. But you actually belong to him. And we read this verse a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. That's a hard thing to get, isn't it? You don't belong to yourself. Oh, you mean as a Christian I don't have ownership of myself? No, you don't. You can still make your own decisions. Absolutely true. But you belong to him. You belong to God. He bought you with a high price, so you must honour God with your body. Here it's talking about honouring him with our body. But the understanding is this, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. You've been enlisted. And if you think about the prevailing mood of the world around us, just as Paul was talking to Timothy, he's saying, you know, you've got to resist this prevailing mood. What's the prevailing mood of most Christianity today? It seems to be entertain me. Make sure you feed me. I'll commit to what I feel like. I'll come when I feel like it. I'll do what God says when I feel like it. I'll take the blessings, but I'm not prepared to actually live and work for Christ. Do you think you could maybe resist that mood as a Christian? Do you think maybe there could be this call from the Spirit on your life to come, give yourself to me and we'll go on an adventure together that's so amazing and exciting and fulfilling and thrilling and dangerous. An adventure like you've never had before because you're willing now to hand over control to me and say, yes, your will be done, not mine. And you will find how beautiful it is to you when you start to do the things that God wants you to do because he gives us the desires of our heart and he fills us with joy and he he gives us the strength that we need. The church 
being held in high esteem, not the building, not the denomination, but the church of God, which is us, the body, the members that are meant to be each one together doing their own part so that all the body could grow. If I read that, that says to me that each and every person here at Cornerstone has a part to play somewhere in the body of Christ. And I believe everybody has some part to play in Cornerstone Christian Fellowship as well. If you're here, if God's called you here, if you feel this is the right place, then God has something for you here. Just want to just quickly go over a couple of other points. Soldiers are given authority. This is really important. There's a story about Jesus um, and a Roman centurion who's, and he needed a healing for someone in his household. But as Christians, you know what? We have an authority. We have an authority given to us by Christ. It is not our own. It's authority given by Christ, but we are to use it. It's very real. God has given you authority. Why is this important? Because Jesus looked at that soldier and he said, you know what, you understand authority really well, obviously. The Roman soldier said this, I tell this one to go and he goes. I tell this one to come and he comes. I have people over me and people under me. I understand authority. And Jesus said, wow, this is a real key. You understand authority, Christians. We have someone over us who is Christ. And he's put all things under his feet for the benefit of the church. He's given him authority and Satan is therefore under our feet. Why do you think Jesus could say with confidence to the disciples, go out, go out, spread the gospel. I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm always with you to the end of the age. The authority we have is in the name of Jesus. That's why we can go out and represent him. Not only that, he said you'll be able to step on all the powers of the enemy. You'll be able to drink poison and all sorts of things would happen. We're not to test God and go and do it. Don't go home and drink poison. But what it's saying is that we have an authority with Christ to overcome Parents, you have authority over your children. It's a godly authority. God has placed you in authority over them and he's given you authority over their lives and he's given you authority over the spiritual influences in their life. Make sure you use it. You can't just use the latest fad. You can't just use the latest training techniques. All those things can be good and helpful and profitable. But are you using your authority as a parent given to you by God to get into their room at night when they're asleep and when they're having trouble, start praying the word of God over their life. Start breaking the strongholds over their life. Start praying the goodness of God into their life. Start praying protection over them. Start thanking God that they're going to serve him for the rest of their life, that no power can harm them because God who lives in them is greater than he is in the world. Authority is really, really powerful. We can have good ideas, we can have great ideas, we can have the right techniques and the right everything else, but sometimes we just have to stand up and speak into that spiritual realm and start to pull down the strongholds over their lives. 
You cannot minimise it. It is the power of God released through a believing Christian over their children, over your friends, over your work situation, over your boss, over your employees, over your workmates. Soldiers are given authority for a reason so they can get a victory. And we have been given authority to get victory as well. And sometimes wars take a while to win. In Hebrews it talks about how we have authority as men. It said God gave authority to us, but not all things are yet under his authority. The authority is there, but not all things are under the authority. It is a matter of us making sure we continue on in faith and continue to believe and continue to sow into our lives the word of God and let it grow. And things in your life will always start to come under that authority, but sometimes it's like taking one piece of ground at a time. But there will come that day, and it says it in Revelations when everything will come under that authority. Everything will come under that authority. So, as we go today, I just want to encourage you to serve with all you have and I'll just read a couple of passages to you (laughs) because this is part of that, I guess, focus on the mission. Listen to this, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. So which one of you missed out? Anyone here? Which one of you didn't get a gift? Anyone? No one? Of course you got a gift. The Bible said it. God has given who? Each of you a gift. I don't feel so gifted. Remember how we said, who cares what you think? This is the word of God. Just because you think it doesn't make it true, the Word of God says it. Each of you has a gift from what? His great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have a gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself was speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. In Romans chapter 12, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility serious. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. The common thread in there is just do it really, really well. And do it with all your heart. Isn't that a good thing? God has given each and every person here a spiritual gift. What's yours? Do you know what it is? If you don't, I'm happy to be called up. Can we meet? Let's have a coffee. Let's talk about me. Let's pray about it. Let's see if God can show you something. But what about you who already know? What about you who already know? I've got this gift. Are you doing it with all your heart? 
today for Jesus, could you honestly stand before him and say, you know what, this is my gift and I'm engaged. My gift is encouraging young people, but I haven't done it for 20 years. Well, that's pretty useless. My gift is giving, but I I haven't been bothered lately. My gift is helping others, but my calendar's full. I'm entangled with the world. I'm so busy doing my stuff, but I know this is a God gift. What's your gift? What is it that, that when you think about it, you just come alive? If I thought of my gift, Neil, what would my gift be? I don't know. But if I could think about it and I could boil it down to four words, maybe it would be Neil believes in people. Maybe that's my gift. I just believe that God can work in your life. I believe that you can make it. I believe if you tap into God, you can get there. I believe if you're hopeless, you can be wonderful. I believe if you're you're sad, God can move on your behalf. I believe that if you're lonely, God can find your family. I believe that, that you are able to do all things through Christ. If you push into him, I believe it. That is something that I really believe. And that's what drives me, what gets me up. And when I see people's lives change through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like gold has been showered upon me. When I see God connecting with someone in this congregation and they're just coming alive to Him, it's like my life comes alive. I share in that happiness and the joy of what it is because I believe that's God's gift to me, to believe in you. It's not from me because in my own selfishness I couldn't give a hoot. It's all about me and and my life and how wonderful that can be. But there has to be a point where you step out into what God has for you. What is it? You know, I believe God wants me to work with children, but I'm not committing to any ministry in that area. I believe God wants me to encourage men, but I'm not, in, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just sitting down with this gift and, and 30 years later I've wasted all my time and there's all these men whose lives I could have transformed and changed through the power of the gospel working. I believe my gift is sharing the word. I believe my gift is discipling people. I believe my gift is music. I believe my gift is making cakes. I believe my gift is making clothes, whatever it might be. God has given you an awesome gift because whatever God gives, the Bible says, is good and it's perfect. Please take the opportunity today to go and say to God, what you've given me I'm going to use and I'm going to plug into you and I'm going to stop making excuses and being a wimp in my Christian walk and and pulling out of, of what you have enlisted me for. It's time. It's time to start to walk into what God has given you. Don't pull back. Over the years, the number of people that I've heard say things like, I'm just passionate about youth. I'm just passionate about growing youth. And you say, can you do something with the youth? Oh, I'm busy. What? Where's that passion? It's like me saying, I'm passionate for my wife, but I don't want to see her. That's not passion. I don't want to do nice things for her. That's not passion. You know what passion is. When you see a motorbike going down the road and you look and you go, wow, that's an awesome bike. Oh, I love that bike. That sounds so good. Man, I love that bike. And I get home and I work on my motorbike and I look up motorbike videos. That's passion. What about the things of God? 
I'm passionate for God. Passionate, so passionate. <laughs> hey, how'd you like to um, get beside this new Christian? Ah, oh, a bit busy. But I'm passionate for God. Come on. Great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Disciple people. <laughs> oh, it sounds horrible when I say it like that. But I don't do it in a way to condemn anyone. I do it in this way. Neil believes in people. I believe that if you grab hold of that gift that God has given you and you do it with all your heart, your life will accelerate to places that you never thought were possible. You will influence people's lives for the kingdom. You will, you will bring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and you will bring hope to this world that desperately needs it. And that's a mission that you have. And as a soldier, you have to take up that challenge. Be focused. Please the one who enlisted you. Work with your life to please God. God, is this pleasing to you? If it is, then you do it with all your heart. You grab hold of that gift. And you are prepared to endure suffering. You know what? We talked about it with the athlete and with the farmer. Sometimes it just takes plain old sweat. Hard work. <laughs> but the upside of that is the farmer gets a crop and he gets to enjoy part of that crop. In fact, he gets the first fruit. That's what God's saying. You plug into me. You think you're helping all these people and doing those things, but the first person who's going to benefit is you. It's totally you. So let's, let's do that. Let's set our mind to the things of God. Find your calling. If you don't know, give me a ring. We'll chat. We'll try and work it out together. But I'm sure that God has amazing things for every person here. Whatever it is that God's called you to do, do it well and do it with all your heart.